Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 84, Bonus Episode, Learning with C.S. Lewis, the Art and Faith Podcast with host Libby John. So recently I was invited by Libby John to come on to the Art and Faith Podcast to talk about Lewis and some of his influences and our favorite things about him. And it was a wonderful hour. Uh, a gentle conversation where we talked about such things as creativity and the effect of community. And of course, we touched on the marvelous work of Diana Glyer and the company they keep and Bandersnatch and looking at creativity, collaboration, and how community is so important for that process. We looked at the creative community between C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and also looked at the kind of arc of their friendship and saw there a model for our own friendships, what we might learn from them and apply to our own lives. As always, Lewis has so many practical helps, and that's, I think, what, in part what keeps his writings really fresh and helpful, evergreen as the years go by, and so we explored some of those. We also delighted ourselves in the Chronicles of Narnia and looked at the fact that they came relatively late in Lewis's career and as such, I think, serve as some of his most mature work. I don't think we should dismiss them as fairy tales. I think that we should embrace them as such and see them in some ways as culminating so much of Lewis's thought, uh, especially about the things of God and the things of creativity and imagination. So it was a delightful time, and I hope you enjoy this episode. And it's as al almost as if we have been imprisoned in a world that is trying to sell us the counterfeit and keep us from love. And so we should escape. And sometimes reading fairy stories are way to face, uh, ways to teach us to face our own dragons. Welcome to Art and Faith Conversations, where we dive deeper into creativity, culture, and our spiritual identity. I'm founder of the podcast, Libby John. This week, I am joined by my guest, Andrew Lazo. Andrew is an internationally known speaker and writer, specializing on C.S. Lewis and the creative writing group Lewis gathered with, referred to as The Inklings. Andrew and I have a great conversation as he shares his wisdom and thoughts on what he's learned from studying Lewis for so long. We talk about imagination and the church, why the Narnia books are some of Lewis's most mature works, and we talk about what we can learn from the way the Inklings challenged each other, not only as a literary group, but as a community of deep friendship. Along with his studies of Lewis, Andrew is currently attending Virginia Theological Seminary, preparing for priestly ministry in the Episcopal Church, and he's also pursuing his doctorate in the Romantic Theology Program at Northwind Seminary. Whether you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's works or not, I think you're going to learn a lot from my conversation with Andrew, just as I did, and you'll be inspired by the hope and joy and love that we find threaded all throughout C.S. Lewis's books. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks for being here. It's such a joy finally to uh, to meet even virtually face to face. I know we've got a lot of connections and uh, and are excited about spending some time with you today. 
Yeah. Well, I know you and I were just talking pre-show how we've been indirectly crossing paths and I think we've known each other online for a little while. So yeah, it's great to finally sit down and have a conversation, um, which you're joining us from Florida. Is that right? I am. I am. My wife's family is from Sarasota, Florida. And so uh, while I'm in seminary and still have my time is still my own before I graduate and head to a pair somewhere, um, <clears throat> we want to spend as much time as we can with the family. And because our seminary from the pandemic is mostly Zoom based, I was able to come down here. So I've got a final tomorrow and a final due on Tuesday. And so oh my goodness. Uh, that'll wow. be done. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I know you're an expert in all things C.S. Lewis, and can we call you a scholar? Isn't there like certain qualifications for that? I don't know what they are, but I'm claiming them. Um, <laughs> I've spent a lot of time on Lewis and uh, and discovered a manuscript uh, that was in the archive at the Wade Center at Wheaton College. And this was uh, almost 10 years ago, eight or nine years, seven or eight years ago now, and transcribed it from Lewis's own handwriting and published it for the first time. And it turns out that it was Lewis's first spiritual autobiography. Yeah, wow. So now I kind of see my name pop up uh, and now and then when, when people are talking about his different conversions. And so, yeah, that, I, I think, though, my favorite title uh, when it comes to Lewis studies is Amateur in the lovely French sense of, uh, you know, a lover. And I just owe Lewis so much. And so it's a, it's always a joy for me to, to delve in. Yeah. Well, I wanted to draw from the deep well of what you know of his works to talk about community and creativity and how cultivating our imaginations with stories like the Chronicles of Narnia is essential to our spiritual formation and art making. I absolutely, you know, I think that that's why Lewis continues to be such a draw for people, right? Mm -hmm. And when you talk about cultivating and collaboration, all of these names like um, Diana Glyer and Lancia Smith's cultivating mm -hmm. project and Anselm yeah. and the redeeming of the imagination. And I think that Lewis in some ways is kind of our, uh, kind of our guide, uh, our pioneer in those lands. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I think of Lewis as not only a door, but a doorway. Right. And so as a scholar, he's, you know, I, I love studying him, but the ideas that he opens us to are doorways that we walk through and the connections that he makes. And so I think that he would be often just as glad as we forgot if we forgot about him and talked about the, uh, the better things that he inspires. So yeah. I think we're right yeah. in the wheelhouse now. I love thinking about it like a doorway. Well, how did you first encounter Lewis's writings and what led you on this path to specializing in studying him? Well, in some ways, I feel like I'm just kind of repaying a longstanding debt. Um, Lewis says of George MacDonald that he owes uh, as much to him, as much Lewis said, I owe as much to MacDonald as one man can owe another. And that's how I feel about Lewis. First encountered him as a child, had a wonderful imaginative aunt who would send us marvelous books. And this was long before I became a Christian um, and found something stirring in Peter's nobility. Hmm. And uh, it turns out that what attracted me and all of that was what I would later discover was called a holiness, um, a purity, a righteousness. Uh, I didn't know about those things. Uh, we never went to church, but I knew that I loved uh, I loved what I was seeing. 
When I became a Christian, I reread the Narnias and felt quite proud of myself to have discovered that there was Christianity in the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> I can pause for a moment of surprise if you'd like. Um, yeah, <laughs> okay. But it was actually when I was uh, in the music business community in Nashville, Tennessee, I was traveling as a road manager for Phil Keggy, the amazing guitar oh, yeah. player. Um, and, and Phil uh, was an inveterate reader had gotten his GED while he was on the road with a rock band. And so he always felt uh, compelled to read as much as he could put his hands on. And he was going through a real Lewis and Tolkien uh, period at that point. And I was going through a crisis of faith where I really wasn't seeing the kind of depth in Christianity uh, that I was hoping for. And I realized now that the shallowness was perhaps not the Christians around me, but the Christian inside of me. Uh, hmm. And I thought, you know, if there's not more to the faith than this, I'm going to sleep in on Sundays and make up my own rules. Well, Phil handed me wisely a copy of Letters to an American Lady. Uh, and that got me started on the adult Lewis, uh, which I had never read at all. And soon stumbled across Surprised by Joy. And that really showed me that I had uh, not thought about my, uh, that Lewis had thought through his atheism better than I'd ever thought through my Christianity. Mm -hmm. So I rolled up my sleeves and thought I better get to the bottom of Lewis. And now in my fifties, I feel like I barely even started. Yeah. Wow. What a story. Well, I wanted to hear from you about what you've learned from studying Lewis's tight knit group of writing friends, the Inklings to kind of dive into community a little bit. And so maybe just first quickly describe the what the Inklings or who the Inklings are, just for those who don't know. Sure, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, I get to uh, to stand tiptoe on the shoulders of giants. Um, Diana Pavlek Glyer has done marvelous work mm -hmm. on the Inklings. These were in the uh, in early 1930s, a group of friends uh, centered around C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and a number of others, Owen Barfield and soon Charles Williams would join, um, Neville Coghill, Cecil Harwood. There were in, in total 19 Inklings. They met roughly between uh, 1930, 1931 to the late 1940s. Um, and they had a fondness for each other's company. And so they settled into a pattern of meeting every Tuesday late morning for a pint of beer at the Eagle and Child, a pint or two or a three or four. <laughs> um, and then on Thursday evenings, they would tromp up the stairs in new buildings in Modlin College there in Oxford uh, to Lewis's rooms. And they would read their manuscripts aloud to each other. Lewis had a passion for being read to and an incredible verbal memory. And so... They would read their works to each other, and then they would, as they said, go at it, hammer and tongs. And so creatively, they would criticize and enjoy and appreciate and laugh. And so that was how books like The Screwtape Letters, um, All Hallows' Eve, uh, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings, uh, these were all written within the company of the Inklings. Um, and they knew that they were reading their works aloud to each other. And because of Lewis's passion for being read to, and because of the camaraderie of the group, uh, a lot of great creativity came about during those Thursday evenings and a lot of great laughter on, on Tuesday mornings. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've heard it said great art is not created in isolation. And so 
I think we can see from just the inklings, you know, that played out. And I was just wondering what you have learned about the communal nature of creativity by studying the inklings. Yeah, boy, I owe them so much and I owe their process so much. And I mentioned earlier uh, the work of Diana Glyer. She spent 23 years reading every word by every inkling. Wow. And that's 365 books and every essay and poem and letter. Um, she's certainly the world's expert on them. And then she wrote a book called uh, The Company They Keep, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien as Writers in Community, where she kind of exploded that very myth that it's not the lonely artist in their garret, mm -hmm. you know, painting away, but it's the interaction. And you see that about a lot of great artists' life, that they need each other to play off of. Uh, the very last picture we have of Vincent van Gogh is him sitting on a beachside cafe, uh, at a beachside cafe with Emile Bernard, and his back is towards us. But he and Bernard are vigorously engaged in conversation. Mm -hmm. And so Diana does a marvelous job. She's done kind of a how to do what the Inklings do uh, edition of the company they keep called Bandersnatch. And that's rapidly amongst my, at least my community, becoming a verb. Have you Bandersnatched that? <laughs> Have you taken your rough draft mm, and worked like through that. it with somebody else? Yeah. Um, uh, comes from a, a quote uh, uh, when Lewis, uh, somebody asked Lewis if he had an influence Tolkien and he said, influence Tolkien? You may as well try to influence a Bandersnatch. <laughs> I love it but certainly their community of love and their demand for good writing. They, these were all mm -hmm. literary uh, minded people. And sometimes Lewis would say better Tolkien better. And Tolkien responded two ways to criticism. He ignored it or he threw away his chapters and he started all over again. Oh. So Lewis's influence um, was, was part of this kind of outgrowth of love. And so they created community and I think that's such a marvelous model. Yeah. I mean, isn't it even kind of said we wouldn't have the Lord of the Rings without Lewis? Uh, Tolkien himself, in fact, said that. He said if it weren't for Lewis's um, uh, constant encouragement, uh, the Lord of the Rings wouldn't have been started, finished, or brought to publication. Mm -hmm. And Lewis had a passion for story. And Tolkien had these genealogies and geographies and maps and languages. Tolkien thought of himself as, as a historian, as a scientist even. And Tolkien remarked later to a friend, you know, Jack, he had to have a story. Uh, and that story, The Lord of the Rings, was written to keep him quiet. Jack was Lewis's nickname. Yeah. And so that great uh, narrative kind of came out of uh, Lewis's encouragement. And then, of course, Tolkien really helped Lewis see that, um, and the idea had already started, but Tolkien helped bring into focus the role of mythology uh, in relationship to the gospel. Tolkien was an ardent Christian when Lewis was an atheist, and their friendship around Norse mythology really kind of led uh, Tolkien to speak truth into Lewis's life at a time where he really could hear it. So we wouldn't really know one without the other. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a marvelous testament to their friendship. In fact, I carry in my pocket a stone from Addison's Walk, which is where Lewis and Tolkien and Hugo Dyson, another inkling, had a long night talk 
that led directly to Lewis's conversion. And I keep this stone, I call it an Addison's rock. Um, keep it in my pocket to remind myself that God can change the world through a handful of people loving the things they love. And that's a lesson I need every day. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, this polarizing world we're living in right now, and I know conflict is not a new thing, but I feel like we're in this culture now where you can't even have a challenging conversation with a friend. But, you know, we see with Tolkien and Lewis, they disagreed about things and that sharpened each other. You know, how can we cultivate that kind of deep friendship and collaborative creative community still today and then even in this digital world absolutely you know i think you put your finger right uh right in the heart of it libby that that there's this culture of disagreement and mm -hmm. um i think that i'd go farther i'd call it a culture of hatred mm -hmm. that we have permitted ourselves to hate those that we don't uh, share opinions with and I think that uh, we are overdue to hear the advice of one of Lewis's uh, great heroes, G.K. Chesterton, who said of his brother, uh, we argued all the time, but we never sunk so low as to quarrel. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that if argument and disagreement and challenging each other redemptively is a gift, I think screw tape. I think the devil would love to twist that gift and turn it into hatred. Yeah. Lewis said of another uh, uh, intellectual opponent that to find an enemy is almost to find a friend. And I think that we need to return to that attitude. And frankly, I think the only way that we can do that, especially in our politically polemically charged climate, is to begin with a heart of love and to return to the, the challenge to love our neighbors as ourselves. It doesn't at all mean agreement, mm -hmm. but it does mean curiosity. It does mean seeking the best. It does mean giving credit uh, for good intention to uh, even to our enemies. Now, of course, let's be wise as serpents, as Jesus said, but let's also be innocent as doves about them. And I think that the key to do that is to deliberately challenge ourselves to love, not necessarily to feel affection, but to want the best from anyone, especially those with whom we disagree. And that might help to season our disagreements with salt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know when I listened to some of the other talks and stuff you've given on Lewis's works, you always talk about how they come from places of love and you're able to find that and draw that out. I think that that was, well, of course, it's the two great commandments, right? To love God and to love neighbor. Um, and then I think, and these are kind of the capstone core core values of my my seminary training and my future ministry as, uh, as an Episcopal priest. Um, once I finish seminary, I think struggling with the, it's what Lewis calls the intolerable compliment that God loves us, right? Mark 10 reminds us that Jesus looked at the young man, the rich young ruler, and loved him. And to grapple with the love of God and then try to 
um, deal in love with one another, I think needs to be the starting place of, of all things. Because Christian theology says that God created out of an abundance of love. He created people so that he could lavish love upon them. Mm-hmm. And if we are indeed created in the imago dei, in the image of God, that creative nature should always be love, uh, love aimed. But that takes deliberate doing in the days and days and ages that we live in, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to transition a little bit to the work and role of our imagination, and you know, I see that as like such a gift of love that God gave us these imaginations and it's Mm -hmm. kind of the mark of our humanity. Mm -hmm. And I know people are probably most familiar with Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia books. So I wanted to ask, what is your perspective of the role of the imagination and fairy tale type stories? What does that play on our spiritual formation? Yeah. um, I think fairy tales perhaps have been given short shrift uh, in some ways, they have fallen out of fashion. Uh, most of maybe most of your listeners um, uh, are are those who who can love and appreciate fairy tales and who resonate with Lewis uh, in the preface to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the dedication to Lucy Barfield, his his uh, goddaughter. He says someday you may be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. And it's important to realize that. Um, the the literary genre of the fairy tale isn't written necessarily for children. It's written for people who like that sort of thing. And if you liked it as a child, you'll likely like it as an adult. And so uh, I think that they get dismissed as juvenilia, but I think there's great power. Um, you know, the editor of Christianity Today, Carl F.H. Henry, famous American theologian, wrote to C.S. Lewis in 1955, right after he had finished writing the Chronicles of Narnia and Till We Have Faces, actually, Hmm. and evidently asked Lewis for more theological articles, the kinds of things that he had written in the 40s, the apologetics and books like Problem of Pain and Mere Christianity and Miracles. And uh, Lewis writes him a a short note saying, "I, I can't write your articles for you, my thought and talent, such as they are, now flow in different, though I think not less Christian channels. And I do not think I am likely to write more directly theological pieces. And Lewis underlines that word in his letter. Hmm. If I am now good for anything, he goes on, it is for catching the reader unawares through fiction and symbol. So Lewis's indirect theology is fictional, symbolic, imaginative. And that's why I often will say that I think that the Chronicles of Narnia, and especially Till We Have Faces, are Lewis's most mature work and -hmm. perhaps his best spiritual statements. He was finally trading in the genre that he loved the best, which is one of narrative and fairy story and myth. And that's that's him speaking his native tongue, I think. Yeah, I heard you say that. You think they are some of his most mature works. And so, Hmm. obviously, if you just look at it on surface level, you wouldn't think that. But to draw out, you know, why that is, that's really interesting. And I think the challenge, too, and I'll challenge your listeners, if it's been a while since you read the Narnias, um, it's worth reading them again. Mm -hmm. 
the older I get and the wider, more widely I'm educated, the deeper those books get. And there have been a, a load of, of recent discoveries about uh, just how deep those chronicles were and the some of the heretofore unrecognized designs undergirded those books. And so there's a, certainly uh, a lot of magic happening there. And it's worth, uh, worth trying them again if you haven't read them in a while. Yeah. Well, do you think the church has gotten away from valuing this role of our imagination in our spiritual formation? And do you think that possibly contributes to a crisis of faith we see a lot of, especially artists, tend to experience? You know, it's that it's that word church that uh, that that trips me up. And uh, Lewis in the Four Loves says the challenge for a critical mind is not to praise or dispraise, but define and describe. Hmm. And so, yes, there certainly are elements of of what you're saying. And a lot of times, artists feel like they have to leave the church in order to be honest to their imagination or their creative gifts. And I just think that that's the devil at work. I think that the enemy is trying to twist both church and creativity. But I also see marvelous things coming out of the church to this day. And, you know, Andrew Peterson in the rabbit room and some of the the wonderful things that they're doing are examples of the church really sponsoring, stirring creativity. Mm -hmm. And I was just watching a video yesterday, famous bass player named uh, Leland Sklar. Lee Sklar has played for everybody. I mean, Phil Collins and Hall and Oates and, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. But he also has played with Phil Keggy in the second chapter of Acts. And, and he mm-hmm. did a whole episode on his YouTube uh, channel about Phil Keggy and his marvelous creativity. And he played some songs. There's marvelous art coming out in the church. And of course, the historical church, um, uh, the Protestant revolution is kind of a young newcomer uh, in terms of the church. And so there's marvelous artistry, cathedrals and paintings and things that have been done to the glory of God, wonderful music yeah. uh, in the past. And so I think the enemy would certainly love to, to, to tamp those efforts down or to twist or distract them. But I actually think that the church, because they're in touch with the creator have in some ways drawn a bead on creativity and you still see i think marvelous art uh being done i have hope anyway well i think you're right i mean i'm seeing so much more happening than i ever have before and including all art forms not just music like it was very music heavy in recent decades but seeing even dance and film and just more art forms being integrated. You know, it's uh, the the C.S. Lewis Foundation based in Redlands, California, um, has long been a sponsor of, of the Oxbridge Conference and in Oxford and Cambridge in England. Um, and there's another one coming up uh, this coming next summer, summer of 22. Uh, and the founder uh, and past president, Stan Matson had this marvelous commitment to dance that you seldom see in evangelical circles. Yeah. And so at every conference, uh, they would find groups of, uh, of uh, faith-based dance groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Stan Matson has really kind of been the founder of a feast of the arts. 
He's brought Bruce Herman, the wonderful painter from the Northeast, from Massachusetts, and Jack Redford, who's done uh, fabulous orchestrations in Hollywood, done scores and scores and scores of, of TVs and movies. And it was at the conference that uh, that Malcolm and Bruce Herman, uh, or that that Jack Redford, Bruce Herman, and Malcolm Geit, the fabulous poet, mm -hmm. yeah. got together, and they put together a project called Ordinary Saints, where Bruce painted portraits, and Malcolm wrote poems, and Jack Redford did orchestrations of them. Wow! And a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, uh, at a at Laity Lodge in Texas. Yeah. Um, they they debuted all of the paintings with uh, with a string orchestra and and Malcolm reading his poetry and so I think that the church has uh, uh, sponsored wonderful sacred art and uh, and they continue to do that yeah wow well how are works like the Chronicles of Narnia or even Lord of the Rings an antidote to the despair we see right now and experiencing in the world right now versus being in escapism. I love that word, uh, escapism. And, um, <laughs> or maybe is that a good thing? I, I don't know. Well, and once again, Lewis being, uh, Lewis and Tolkien being deeply committed to language would, um, certainly start by saying, what do you mean by escape? Um, mm -hmm. but even before that, I think that Churchill's advice is good. When you're going through hell, keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. right? That when it comes to despair, we're going to find it. Our Lord promised it. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And, you know, I just finished um, writing a paper for Northwind Seminary uh, for my Inklings course, arguing that the Inklings were in some ways the same kind of literary modernists that the James Joyce's and Virginia Woolf's and T.S. Eliot's were. And part of it is because you see so much despair in the work of Tolkien and Lewis. If you look up hopeless and no hope, that's what, that's what characterizes the trip up, up to Mount Doom. The trip through Mordor was mm -hmm. hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. He says that again and again. Um, and certainly both men had gone through World War I uh, Orwall until we have faces is despairing. You look at the last battle and that's full of despair. Um, but at the end, uh, after Frodo and Sam are lying there on the mountain and the world is blowing up, the eagles come. Mm -hmm. And at the end, as Narnia comes crashing into the sea and all the stars fall from the heavens, there's Aslan at the door looking at people with love and welcoming us into his country. And so I think that there's no out but through but when it comes to escape, actually, Lewis has got a fantastic poem. And in thinking about this before our conversation, I looked it up again. It's a poem that has been called The Prudent Jailer. And in the latest critical edition, it's called um, The Romantics. And I'll read just a couple of verses if I could. Yeah. This is Lewis responding to the charge of escapism. He says, always the old nostalgia. Yes, we still remember times before we learned to wear the prison dress and irons made our ankles sore. Still, when we hear the train at night, we envy the free travelers whirled in some few seconds past the sight 
of the blank walls that bound our world. Escapists? Yes. Staring at bars and chains, we think of files. And then of dark night muffling moon and stars and luck befriending hunted men. Wow. Lewis and Tolkien's idea of escape and Tolkien in On Fairy Stories, which I recommend as highly as I can. It's kind of the manifesto of the Inklings. And Lewis quotes from it, Tolkien wrote it, On Fairy Stories. There's a marvelous annotated edition edited by Verlin Flieger and Douglas Anderson. Easy to find. And it's kind of a 90-page essay on the role of fairy stories. And Tolkien says that the, the goal is recovery, escape, and consolation. And escape, not trying to escape the world. And any of our listeners who have read fairy tales mm -hmm. know that there's darkness there, sometimes far darker than our, uh, our lives contain. Yeah. Um, but escape as being somebody like in Lewis's poems had been, had been uh, wrongly imprisoned. And so escape is the only faithful act. And we've been sold a bill of goods in our society. Hmm. If you look at what people are trying to get us to buy, none of those things will make us soul happy. Yeah. And it's as, almost as if we have been imprisoned in a world that is trying to sell us the counterfeit and keep us from love. And so we should escape. And sometimes reading fairy stories are way to face, uh, ways to teach us to face our own dragons. Chesterton talked about that, Lewis did too. And so escape not as escapist, but escape as looking at the reality that I have, the false reality that I have been pitched and saying, no, there's another world. There's a new Jerusalem coming down someday. And yes, the moon will turn red and the stars will fall from the sky and the hearts of men will, will grow cold, but there's a better world coming. Uh, Charlie Peacock uh, said, I want to live like heaven is a real place. And Puddleglum says, I want to live like a Narnian, even if there is no Narnia. Well, there is a Narnia and it's coming. And we should try to escape uh, the dark lies of this world. Uh, if we will be faithful. And to me, fairy tales are a great way to start to learn the vocabulary of proper escape for improperly imprisoned people. Hmm. Wow, I love those very hopeful words. Hmm. Well, I know that you are in seminary, like you said, and for somebody who already has a lot of credentials, <laughs> tell us just about that calling that you felt kind of this later in life calling? Yeah, well, I appreciate you asking. It's been something that I've grappled with and I find out now as I'm about to become a professional Episcopal priest that there's even a name for it. It's called the call narrative. And so we, uh, we work up our, our shorthand versions of our call narrative. For me, um, and Kristen always points this out, uh, when I was teaching English at a Christian high school, a couple different Christian high schools, marvelous work. But the part that really thrilled me was the chance to get to talk to students or to pray with a colleague and, or to talk about the, the sacraments and to talk about the Eucharistic nature of giving a cup of coffee to somebody who might come to visit my room. Those are the things that thrilled me. And so 
I began to wonder if uh, if I was talking about the sacraments when I should have been talking about misplaced modifiers and dangling participles. Maybe I should find better work. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, an Episcopal priest friend, dear friend, um, encouraged me to maybe see if I could find ways to make my desire to teach, but my desire to speak the truth of the gospel, see if I could make those things come together better. Those kind of two oppositions uh, really met in a quote that I found um, was given to me by, by a friend from Frederick Beekner, a marvelous Presbyterian writer. Uh, and he says, the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I just posted that on Instagram. Oh my goodness. I don't even think of I think I saw that in your feed. Yeah. Or maybe Great that timing. was what inspired me. And I love people and I love language and I love the gospel. And so it seems like professional ministry might be a place to at least try to get close to those things. So uh, I, I mentioned it to Kristen and she was strangely warmed to borrow that Wesleyan phrase. <laughs> to go on that adventure. Yes. And, uh, and so uh, we moved in 2019 to, the, um, to Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria, Virginia. It's one of the best Episcopal seminaries. And I'm, uh, I've been a bunch of things. I'm an Episcopaptocostitarian. Wow. And there's a part of me that will always love the evangelical tradition and part of me that will always love the liturgy. And so, mm -hmm. so I was asked by my bishop to go to, to Virginia. I found out during that time that Walter Hooper, who was C.S. Lewis's secretary in the last year of Lewis's life, mm -hmm. uh, Walter himself had attended that seminary in the 50s. Uh, Walter, now of blessed memory, oh. just passed away. But it's nice to look around and think Walter might have been here. Yeah. Um, and I'm also actually part of Northwind Seminary, started by Rob Duncan and Michael Christensen. Michael Christensen, well-known in the C.S. Lewis world for his book on Lewis and Scripture. And in their retirement, have started an online seminary. And so I'm pursuing my doctorate in, uh, in theology and ministry um, and uh, doing it. The, the program is called Romantic Theology. So working on Lewis and Tolkien and Barfield and, and Williams, the Inklings, wow. uh, with a wonderful cast of, uh, of folks. Mm -hmm. Kristen's at Northwind as well, my wife, uh, pursuing her doctorate in spiritual formation, uh, working on Henry Nowen. Oh, wow. So, so that's a couple of different seminaries. And yeah, it's going to throw some more letters behind my name, but it also, I think, give me some skills to see if I can make the love of God clear, mm -hmm. which is kind of central to, uh, to my vision of my own vocation, yeah. to, to make it clear and to, to speak about love. Yeah. So that's where I am as I've got a couple more finals to finish up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we can definitely hear that voice of ministry and love come through and everything you're saying here today and what you're doing. So I've asked you if you could wrap up our time here with a blessing or a benediction to leave our listeners with. Hmm. Well, I have prepared something, but I do need to say that the blessing of the invitation um, and your gracious preparation of that have already been a benediction to me. 
and to know that there is uh, out there in the in the Zoom land in the podcast world uh, a hunger for these things, and to have uh, to have been able to have some voice there. Um, I've done some work with the Pints with Jack mm-hmm. podcast, in addition to those marvelous folks at Anselm Society and yeah. and elsewhere. Um, so the the benediction has come to me, and so if I can return a little. Uh, uh, back. I think I'm fulfilling an obligation. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So I was looking through this marvelous poem that Lewis wrote, or that Tolkien wrote to Lewis while Lewis was still an atheist. Lewis made the mistake in Tolkien, who was an ardent Catholic all his life, uh, made the mistake of saying to Tolkien that mythology was just lies, though breathed through silver. Tolkien said balderdash. <laughs> And he wrote a poem called Mythopoeia, which is the two Greek words mythos and poema. Uh, Mythos means story and poema, poem. It just means a crafted thing. Mm -hmm. And actually, I'm so touched that um, that when St. Paul says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared for us to walk in. Workmanship is the Greek word poema. And any of our listeners, any of us who have tried to create something like a poem uh, or a dance, we know that it's a reworking and a reworking and it takes time and frustration. And we are God's carefully crafted thing. And so uh, Mm -hmm. Tolkien wrote this poem to Lewis and I'll end our time together with uh, just a few phrases uh, from that poem that struck me so well. And let this be our blessing. Blessed are the timid hearts that evil hate, that quail in its shadow and yet shut the gate, that seek no parley and in guarded room, though small and bait upon a clumsy loom, weave tissues gilded by the far off day, hoped and believed in under shadows sway. Blessed are the men of Noah's race that build their little arks, though frail and poorly filled, and steer through winds contrary towards a wraith, a rumor of a harbor guessed by faith. Blessed are the legend makers with their rhyme of things not found within recorded time. Such isles they saw afar and ones more fair, and those that hear them yet yet may yet beware. They have seen death and ultimate defeat, and yet they would not in despair retreat but oft to victory have turned the lyre and kindled hearts with legendary fire, illuminating now and dark hath been with light of suns as yet no man has seen. May that be our task and our hope today and in the days to come. hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andrew. You can find out more about him and his studies through his website, which I share in the show notes. As always, 
Thanks for listening and sharing the podcast with friends and on your social networks. And also leaving a kind review wherever you listen to the podcast. It's the best way to support this work and help me continue having these transformative conversations as we continue to spur one another on through our creative acts and art making. Blessings, my friends, and we'll see you next time. Well, I hope you found that as delightful as I did. And please join us again on Pints with Jack next time when we will be going further up and further in.